Hi, I'm your host, Drew Wilson. Welcome to episode 40 of the Friesen Official Podcast for February 2022. Here are your top three headlines. FreezeNet dives deep into the rise and fall of the so-called Freedom Convoy. Antitrust developments crop up with Amazon and Apple. And Canada's censorship legislation moves ahead despite widespread outcry. It just seems like the levels of insanity have been dialed up to beyond 11 this month. History was made in Canada along with this top story. I found myself writing articles I would never have even gotten close to predicting by the time I was writing the script for the last month's podcast. With exception to providing some context, we'll keep things to the more technology and original reporting side of things. This for the sake of keeping this podcast down to less than three hours long. We began our coverage of the convoy with some of the supporters' online activities. Theo Maducas, a cartoonist for the Toronto Star, drew a cartoon showing a Canadian beaver being flattened by a trucker carrying disinformation and extremism. Obviously, this was a criticism towards the convoy where Canadian voices seemed overrun by constant horn honking and extremists screaming freedom. The political cartoon drew the ire of convoy supporters who didn't like the speech being posted. They sent the cartoonist veiled death threats for daring to criticize them. Totally disconnected and tone deaf, you are going to see. A reckoning is coming, wrote one Twitter user. Going to enjoy your trial, wrote another supporter. You're a POS, and congratulations, you've been put on our list. It's not a winner's list either. A fourth supporter wrote, It's time for the reckoning and you will be brought to account. Mudakis, for his part, seemed to keep his cool and wrote sarcastic comments in response to the threats. Still, the convoy, even in the early days, was getting off to a rather scary and un-Canadian start. By the end of the first week, tensions were on the rise. Canadians were responding to the convoy with small counter-protests. Zexy Lee got lawyer Paul Champ to file an injunction against the constant horn blasting 24-7. This after police seemed to not bother with enforcing the law. By this point, it became clear that this was not a protest, but rather an occupation. GoFundMe agreed with this assessment and suspended the donation page for the occupiers. Among the reasoning was that it had become clear that this was no longer a protest, but rather an occupation of the downtown core of Ottawa. What's more is that GoFundMe learned of criminal activity associated with the convoy. In response, they suspended the donation page and refunded the $10 million people donated in the process. The mayor of Ottawa also declared a state of emergency at that point in time. Almost immediately after the suspension, far-right extremists and Republicans from the U.S. vowed reprisals. This in response to GoFundMe suspending the donations page. Republican Governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, lashed out at GoFundMe and called GoFundMe's actions a fraud. West Virginia and Louisiana attorneys generals, meanwhile, sent out a message to their constituents. They asked them to contact them immediately if they donated so that they can carry out an investigation. Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene called for GoFundMe to be arrested and called them corporate communists. In response to this immediate and forceful reaction, it became increasingly clear that the funding might have had close ties to far-right elements in the U.S. It was around this time that Friesen had gained access and started reporting on internal communications within the convoy. In one exchange, right when the Ambassador Bridge was hijacked, a woman desperately asked other members of the so-called convoy to let a diabetic relative cross the bridge. 
She pleaded with them, telling them that her relative needed medication, but after being stuck at that bridge for hours, isn't doing so well. A supporter responded coldly that they've been waiting two years for freedom and said, Sorry. Fighting back tears, the woman said that they were okay if he dies waiting for life-saving medication. Sometime after that exchange was made public, the dying man was able to get through for his life-saving medication, though it appeared that as though that it was only after taking flack for responding to the situation like that. By that point, Lee's injunction was approved by a judge to stop the non-stop honking. As that happened, U.S. Republicans were seeking new ways of funneling cash to the occupiers. One medium was apparently Give, Send, Go, a Christian church-based organization operating in the U.S. The refund of money, at that point, started being sent through that organization to circumvent the shuttering of the GoFundMe page. With the Ambassador Bridge hijacked, convoy organizers started issuing new demands over their existing demands. They called on the Governor General to dissolve government, but said that they would be willing to work with the NDP, Bloc, and Conservative Party to form a new government. These demands are made as the demands to lift all mandates started going by the wayside. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau responded that the demands to overthrow the government was a non-starter. He noted that if that was their demands, he had no intention of meeting with them. The hijacking of the Ambassador Bridge meant that $400 million in trade per day was no longer happening. The convoy supporters said that if Trudeau gave in to their demands, then they would unblock the bridge. Obviously, this rises to the technical definition of economic terrorism. After all, they were holding parts of the Canadian economy hostage for the purpose of fulfilling ideological goals. What's more is that they were terrifying and causing harm to citizens of Ottawa. Freeznet, at this point, became aware that cracks were beginning to form from within. The terrorists were noting that real truckers were becoming increasingly frustrated with them. There was a possibility that COVID-19 was also spreading through their ranks. In response, the occupiers were trying to find sources of fake COVID-19 cure ivermectin. Something else we noted at the time was the deteriorating health of some of the occupiers. This thanks in part to the constant burning of diesel fuel in Ottawa. Another problem noted by the occupiers is a lack of manpower. They were struggling to maintain control of the bridge as police blocked routes leading to that bridge. The next day, internal communications suggested that the terrorists were jumping the curb to evade the police blockades. Despite this, complaints are growing from within that the promised reinforcements were not coming. Journalists, meanwhile, went to the scene to cover the story, but were quickly swarmed, accused of working for the devil, and received other forms of verbal abuse as well. One journalist, Evan Solomon of CTV, reportedly had a full beer can thrown at his head as well. Luckily, it missed and hit some camera equipment instead. Other internal communications recent received suggest that morale kept cratering among supporters. This was met with denials as other supporters pushed back. Still, there was attempts to try and boost morale. This came in the form of a part of Highway 402 near the Blue Water Bridge being hijacked by a mere 20 occupiers and 15 farm tractors. Despite a successful hijacking, the numbers were quite low. Surprisingly though, despite the low numbers, the terrorists were actually in the process of making enemies with perceived allies at the time. Some were accusing police of being jackbooted thugs. They were also contemplating moving some members to Toronto to give Doug Ford a piece of their mind. They called Ford's reaction disappointing. In response to these reports, authorities in Toronto preemptively blocked critical infrastructure. This to prevent Toronto from being another occupied city. With the Canada-US border in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and in Ontario hijacked, along with the downtown core of Ottawa, 
it was looking like the terrorists were winning this with little resistance from authorities and seemingly no major action from all levels of government. It was at that point that Canada finally started to fight back. An Ontario judge ordered the freezing of the funds being sent through Give Send Go. Give Send Go responded by saying that the court can't control what they do. A subsequent analysis of the donor funding suggests that a majority of the funds actually came from U.S. sources. This confirmed what was previously suspected. Further, as the auto manufacturers filed an injunction to have the Ambassador Bridge reopened, Ontario Premier Doug Ford took time out of snowmobiling near his cottage to call for the blockades to end. With the heat and pressure building, the occupiers initiated a massive campaign to flood Canadian 911 call centers. With the heat and pressure building, the occupiers initiated a massive campaign to flood Canadian 911 call centers, preventing people with real emergencies from getting through for the day. On the ground, children were pictured being used as human meat shields. Those pictures circulated social media. This was seemingly part of an effort to frustrate potential police action. The situation for the terrorists would only grow worse. A judge granted the injunction to have the Ambassador Bridge reopened. As that happened, apparently, organizers of the terrorist occupation suddenly started disappearing. Some lower-level grunts were beginning to suspect that reinforcements weren't coming. Some lower-level grunts were beginning to suspect that reinforcements weren't coming. Some in the Zello channels were saying that people who were on the ground weren't the ones urging them to hold a line. One of those people urging them to hold the line inadvertently revealed that he was an American. This as suspicions were growing. What's more is that banks like TD said that they were going to cooperate with authorities. They chose to intercept the funding from the Give Send Go campaign. This effectively cut off the flow of funds in the process. What's more is that efforts to expand around the world were not going well. Counterparts in Belgium, France, and New Zealand wound up facing arrests and bans from the start. Police also started moving in at the Ambassador Bridge with terrorists shouting at the police. While it looked like police were finally motivated to liberate the Ambassador Bridge, they eventually backed off. The terrorists declared victory at that point. That victory, however, was short-lived as police returned for a second day. On their second attempt, Canadian authorities were successful in liberating the Ambassador Bridge. With relief not coming soon enough, Ottawa residents began taking matters into their own hands. They began showing up on the streets in large numbers and began participating in counter-demonstrations. As that was going on, media outlets began removing emblems on their vehicles out of fear for their personal safety. On a side note, there was an attempted hijacking at a BC border crossing. After multiple arrests, the hijacking was unsuccessful. Gifts and Go suffered from a major data leak as well. They exposed the financial and personal details of everyone who donated to the convoy through Gifts and Go. A security researcher discovered the leak and contacted the company as an effort to resolve the security lapse. With tensions described as being at a boiling point, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act. The moment was widely noted as the first time the act was ever invoked in the Canadian history. It also marked the first time that concrete action was actually taking place at all from the federal government. It was also the first action from any level of government that gave people hope that this occupation might actually be coming to an end. We also note that Gifts and Go suffered from a separate hack, exposing the details of their donors again. This time, the site was pulled offline as Gifts and Go tried to beef up their security. Still, the damage was done, and the information made its way to the leak dump site Distributed Denial of Secrets. They said that they'll be distributing the information only to journalists and researchers. They said that thanks to the nature of the personal information, they wouldn't be publicly posting the data. 
As that happened, a second injunction was granted against the honking. The injunction expanded to include idling in Ottawa. Fallout continued right after the Emergencies Act was invoked. The chief of police in Ottawa, Peter Slowly, resigned. The more hardcore occupiers said that the Emergencies Act and warnings were just scare tactics. They said that they weren't going anywhere. Meanwhile in Alberta, police seized a large weapons cache containing multiple firearms and boxes of ammunition. Anti-hate groups said that gun runners associated with hate organizations were behind the weapons. Between the Emergencies Act and the weapons seizure found at a so-called peaceful demonstration, the occupiers surrendered the border near Coots and left. Meanwhile, Finance Minister Christia Freeland announced some of what the Emergencies Act would entail in this situation. Numerous powers are being granted to authorities to track down and cut off funding to the terrorist occupations. Accounts suspected of being associated with the convoy would no longer need a court order to be frozen. Initial reaction was tepid, but those actions would prove to be highly effective from the start. By the next day, many occupiers found their accounts were suddenly frozen. Credit cards suddenly were no longer being accepted. While some were calling it government tyranny, it was clear that the pain was already being felt among supporters of the terrorist occupation. Armed with the powers of the Emergencies Act, court injunctions, and new resources, police operating in Ottawa handed out warnings to the occupiers, telling them to leave or face arrest. A few ended up leaving, but a number of them stayed, even ripping the warning notice in half in response in one case. An additional attempt to seize control of the Ambassador Bridge failed thanks to the heavy police presence. Some Americans attempted to cross the border and join the occupiers were being turned away. Most famously, MyPillow CEO, Mike Lindell, was turned away for not being able to show that he had been vaccinated. Lindell was also unable to show that he had a negative PCR test. He subsequently had to go back to America. A so-called People's Convoy was also gearing up. A date being set was February 23rd. The plan was to go from California to Washington, D.C. The next day, Ottawa police handed out more warnings to leave Ottawa or risk being arrested. A charge was also laid in connection to the Alberta weapons cache where one of the occupiers was charged with conspiracy to murder police. Also, a subsequent report digging into the leaked information showed that American influence in the donor pool was still significant. On the third day, Ottawa police moved in and began arresting occupiers still in the Ottawa downtown core. This despite some of the occupiers using their children as human meat shields. Police said that child protective services were used in the process to protect the children. In the process, multiple organizers of the occupation were arrested. This included Tamara Litch, Pat King, and Chris Barber. Another report suggested that former RCMP officer turned organizer Danny Bulford was also arrested. Several other organizers, however, remain at large. This includes Tom Morazzo, Benjamin Dichter, and Dictator Hot Donna. Of course, clearing out an occupation that had been entrenched for three weeks wasn't going to be easy. On day two, more arrests were made and vehicles were towed. Reports also surfaced that police had seized multiple weapons in Ottawa as well. One of the interesting observations was that cameras were being used by police during the clearing out process. During a press conference watched by Friesnet, police responded saying that cameras were there as a method of collecting evidence. They noted that they can use the footage to identify individuals and potentially further charges later on. Paul Champ, a lawyer representing Zexy Lee, Paul Champ, a lawyer representing Zexy Lee, was also behind a class action lawsuit against the organizers. The lawsuit is seeking over $306 million in damages. By day three, over 191 arrests were made. 57 vehicles were also towed. Police set up 100 checkpoints throughout the city as they worked to finish clearing out the streets. 
The checkpoints were also used to keep the city streets cleared. Ottawa residents reportedly described the peaceful silence as a little eerie, but welcome. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney filed a lawsuit to stop the Emergencies Act from being enforced as well. A second attempt at hijacking at the BC border also failed. By this point, all borders had been cleared and occupations of any critical infrastructure had been removed or surrendered to Canada. It is noted that some of the occupiers are still at the peripheral portions of Ottawa trying to regroup, but have been kept out of the downtown core for now thanks to the secure zone. Yes, if you can believe it, that was an abbreviated version of events that unfolded. Last month, a major theme in our podcast was antitrust action against large tech giants. Some of the news spilled over into this month. In one particularly big story, Amazon was forced to shut down their Sold by Amazon program after allegations of price fixing surfaced. This according to court documents filed by the Washington State's Attorney General. The lawsuit was filed in the King County Superior Court in Seattle. As part of the, res- as part of the restitution, Amazon was forced to shut down the program and pay $2.25 million to the Attorney General. You might remember the Apple vs. Epic court battle. A quick recap is that Epic's A quick recap is that Epic sued Apple over Fortnite getting kicked out from the Apple App Store. Epic said that Apple operates anti-competitively. A judge agreed that Apple must allow alternative payment systems, but also concluded that Apple is no monopoly. While that might sound like a reasonable conclusion, it turns out Epic appealed. What's more is that, while appealing, 35 U.S. states joined the lawsuit claiming that Apple is, indeed, a monopoly. Along with them is the U.S. Justice Department, which, in a court filing, said the district court committed several legal errors that could imperil effective antitrust enforcement, especially in the digital economy. Finally, Canada's social media user-generated content censorship bill is back. In early February, the government filed notice that it would introduce the bill. The notice was a signal that the Liberal government is serious about cracking down on the internet. It also follows promises to bring back Bill C-10. Two days later, the legislation was tabled. The new bill, called Bill C-11, is also known as the Online Streaming Act. In the process of seeing the bill introduced, we produced our own analysis. The bill goes to great lengths to incorporate online undertakings into the Broadcasting Act. As such, it does what the previous bill tries to do, treat the internet and large platforms as just another cable TV channel. The legislation calls on foreign online platforms to make the maximum use of Canadian talent and promote Canadian programming through their online platform or service. The critical section 4.1, which started this whole controversy in the first place, was put back into the legislation. It does actually exempt user-generated content. However, a new section, section 4.2, was tacked on at the end, which is actually an exception to the exception. In this exception to the exception, Unless money doesn't change hands, or it's a slideshow with no music, or possibly an animated GIF, then user-generated content is actually regulated. This puts a huge swath of content under heavy regulation, almost rendering section 4.1 completely useless. What's more is that it puts a whole lot of jurisdiction over what is considered Canadian content and what should be regulated into the hands of the CRTC. A particular section we found that has to do with an assigned identifier. A particular section we found has to do with an assigned identifier. If a unique identifier under an international standard system is applied to said content, then the CRTC can regulate that content. The big one would theoretically be a URL. 
If you upload content anywhere, a server needs to identify that file on that server. As such, a URL is defined to identify that content. A URL is internationally recognized and, as such, if you upload that content anywhere online, then it can be regulated by the CRTC. Supporters of this censorship bill are already saying that this legislation does not order websites to apply a specific algorithm. This is true. However, the bill also mandates what the results of those algorithms should be. Put it another way, it's the government's way of saying, we don't care how you do it so long as our hand-picked content wins in the recommendations section of your site. So, in short, so, in short, precious little has changed. There's some clerical differences between Bill C-10 and Bill C-11, but some of it appears to be intended to mislead the public. The bill, in our mind, is still highly unconstitutional given that it suppresses content not deemed Canadian enough. As a result, it's still a very bad bill. Shortly after our analysis, we looked towards responses from other experts. We found multiple experts responding to the legislation. Generally speaking, they all agree it is a bad bill. Michael Geis generally agreed that this bill still regulates user-generated content. He further notes that services like BritBox, DAZN, and numerous forum-based platforms hosting all kinds of content will get sucked into heavy regulation. He even suggests that some news sites might also be subject to regulation. He concluded, the bill is not ready for prime time and still requires extensive review and further reform to get it right. Dwayne Winsek also responded to the legislation and called for the bill to be killed. Winsek notes that the bill places a large range of human expression into defined broadcasting program for regulation. As a result, he says that through the backdoor process, the government will get to regulate human expression online. Winsex summarizes that almost any form of human expression online would fall under the purview of the CRTC as long as the content does 1. Generate revenue 2. Are broadcast or made available on more than one service that is either licensed by or registered with the CRTC 3. Has some kind of international service identifier tied to it, such as an ISO number, section 4.22 The concerns of this bill, as a result, are overwhelming already. As a result, we can only foresee this bill getting challenged in court on constitutional grounds. Given the political situation in Canada, it looks like this is where the bill is going to ultimately head to in the end. More recently, Canadian Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez, more recently, Canadian Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez made a fresh push to try and sell the legislation. In a conference, the minister called on his lobbyist buddies to help him push this legislation through. He also said that critics hijacked the process last time, but then said that he fixed the problems in the bill. This despite the problems being partially fixed, then broken again thanks to section 4.2. The minister then tweeted out an advertisement pulling quotes from people who both benefit from and support the bill. He excluded criticism and said that this is what people are saying about the bill. Observers were less than impressed with this low-level effort. <laughs> I still can't believe we easily topped the level of drama from last month, yet here we are. It's completely ridiculous, really. Anyway, here are some of the other stories making news this month. Julian Assange has won the right to appeal his extradition case. Last month, we brought you news that the U.S. government appealed the case in an effort to extradite him to the U.S. The U.S. government won that appeal. Obviously, Assange's lawyers vowed to appeal the case. This month, Assange's legal team won the ability to appeal the case to the British Supreme Court. 
The next step after this is to see if the British Supreme Court will agree to hear the case. A denial here would further reduce Assange's legal options. As that was happening in the court system, the UK government received backlash over its anti-encryption ad campaign. The campaign cost British taxpayers approximately £534,000. It was planned to feature a glass room that suggested a child was about to be abused and encryption turning the whole room black. Rihanna Pfefferkorn of TechDirt commented, The new twist of hiring an ad agency to sell people their own subjugation using their own tax money is just insulting. Here's hoping the Home Office's anti-privacy ulterior motive will be like that glass box. People will see right through it. The Electronic Frontier Foundation commented, Fortunately, the Home Office's ham-handed campaign falls flat. It's been met with scorn and derision on social media, but that's not all. Today, the UK government's own information commissioner's office, an agency charged with protecting data privacy, pointed to encryption's important role in both safeguarding our privacy and online safety and dismissed the campaign. Over in the US, there are still efforts to try and implement the link tax in that country. The US Copyright Office received feedback over the link tax, rebranded as Ancillary Copyright. The Kapaya Institute, which is part of TechDirt, issued a response urging the government to abandon the idea. To the extent that some larger media outlets may envision doing special licensing deals with the big platforms like Google and Facebook, which they think they'll be able to strike in an extortive shadow of a scheme like this, it would still leave everyone else, especially the smaller independent media outlets without that bargaining power, in even more trouble than they are already in now. So, with all that news happening, let's switch things up and turn towards entertainment. Before I get into the video game reviews, I wanted to point out the first impression videos we posted this month. First up is the Steam game Just Cause 3. You can check out that video directly on our site or via YouTube. After that, we tried the PlayStation 3 game Motorstorm Pacific Rift. That video can be seen via our site or on YouTube. For our first Xbox 360 game, we played the game Gears of War. That video can be found via our site or YouTube. Finally, we tried the Steam game Flat Out. That video can be seen via our site and YouTube. As always, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and turn on notifications to get real-time updates on what videos we've posted. Now, here are the video games we reviewed this month. First up is Mickey's Ultimate Challenge for the Sega Genesis. A game that is far too easy and is exceedingly short to boot. This one gets a fairly average 68%. After that, we tried Marble Madness for the Sega Genesis. A game that sticks largely to the original game, including the now-dated graphics. This despite the fact that it is on a much more powerful system. This one also gets a fairly average 68%. We then tried Shove It, the warehouse game. Repetitive and unimpressive gameplay means that this title is only attractive to players who are already big on puzzle games. This one gets a barely passable 52%. Finally, we played Blockout for the Sega Genesis. A somewhat novel idea of having a top-down perspective of Tetris, but the gameplay quickly becomes dull and boring. This one flops to the 42%. As for music to listen to this month, we've got Fi-Fi and Greg D, Jesus Trip Christianity Mix, Sequential 1, Happy Feelings Extended Version, Interactive, Set Me Free, R&B, Love is an Ocean, Stefensen Remix, X-Plane, Flight to Desire, Trancy Rave Mix, Shaheen and Simon, Outbreak, Hitchhiker and Dumont, Journey of Love, Long Space Rubber Mix, and finally, CJ Boland, The Tower of Naftali. So that leads us to Pick of the Month. This month, our Pick of the Month belongs to Interactive, Set Me Free. 
And in other news, there's no shortage of weird things people are willing to steal. Here's one more odd thing that someone tried to steal. A man apparently made his way into the Bocano Snake and Animal Farm and stole Blanche, the bobcat. Security footage showed him struggling with the bobcat. The man apparently sustained injuries from the bobcat in the process. Blanche was safely returned to the farm. Seriously, who steals a bobcat? There's no shortage of parents worried about how much screen time their kids have. One man in France thought he found a solution to his kids' late-night screen time. He apparently bought and used a multi-wave band jammer to prevent his kids from accessing the internet late at night. Well, it worked. The kids didn't have access to the internet when it was in use. The problem was that in the process, the man unknowingly took out the internet for the entire town. <laughs> Officials investigated and found the source of the dropped internet connectivity. He reportedly faces up to six months in jail and a 30,000 euro fine. Probably should have stuck to basic parental controls instead, methinks. Have you ever had that moment where you are attempting to plug something in only to realize the cables were too short? British shipbuilders know just how you feel. Just to a slightly bigger scale is all. Two ferries are being built in the Ferguson shipyard. The company behind the cabling went into administration, but the cables had already arrived and just needed installing. So the British shipbuilders went to uncoil and install them, only to discover that they were too short. The company then made the decision to remove the cabling and purchase all new cabling for the ships as their solution. Here's hoping that the new cabling will finally reach those electrical outlets. I also take it splicing the cables was out of the question. <laughs> Before I close out this month's podcast, we got two announcements to make. The first announcement may or may not affect you, but we have switched social media sharing providers. Up to the end of January, we were using Deliverit. The service, up to this year, allowed up to three posts per day. Well, in the new year, they said that they will be changing that limit to 50 posts per month. So, for the month of January, we decided to see if the 50 posts per month limit would work for us. A couple of days before the end of the month, we reached that limit and found ourselves unable to post automatically to social media. So, we switched to the Jetpack service. We were actually test running Jetpack on our Tumblr page and it didn't seem to have any problems. So, in response to this limitation, we quickly switched everything over to Jetpack. We evidently outgrew the previous service and it was time to move on. We'd like to thank Deliverit for being our provider for so many years. For you, the reader, the change shouldn't mean anything and you should see that our content continue to get shared as per usual. We also posted our January Wiki content patch. This month, we did make some progress on the current archiving project. As of now, we made it all the way up to the Future Sound of Egypt 430. It's a slight improvement over what we had before. We also updated the archives to have the latest episodes for the Future Sound of Egypt, Fables, Resonation, and the Random Movement podcast. Curiously, no new episodes for the V Recordings podcast this month, so that archive remains updated as is. We hope you enjoyed the added content and hope to add even more content in the future. Also, huge shout out to Nolan for providing mixing services. 
If you'd like to get your hands on some behind-the-scenes stuff, exclusive content, and early access material, you can check our Patreon page at patreon.com slash freezenet. Through this, you can help make freezenet just that much better, all the while getting some pretty cool stuff in the process. That's patreon.com slash freezenet. Alternatively, you can simply buy us a coffee via coffee.com slash freezenet. And that's this month's episode for February 2022. I'm Drew Wilson for FreezeNet. Be sure to check out our website, freezenet.ca, for all the latest news and reviews. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening, and see you next month.